Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. It's so nice to see everyone. Welcome to those of you who that I recognize and that I don't. Uh, I'm Rabbi Emily Hyatt from Temple Emmanuel, and um, we had the privilege of partnering with Valley Baby Drash for this. Uh, this is our second program in partnership with Valley Baby Drash, and we're so excited um, about uh, all of these um, opportunities that we have to learn with so many amazing people that we would never have the chance to learn with if we were not doing this program. And so we're going to jump right in and give the full hour to my uh, friend and colleague, Rabbi Morris Panitz. Um, we were in a fellowship together in rabbinical school. And so it is such a pleasure to get to learn from him today. Um, there's nothing better than getting to reconnect with old friends um, and have that opportunity. Um, and Rabbi Panitz is the assistant rabbi at ICAR, which is a really fabulous and, um, and sort of groundbreaking Jewish community community in LA that's looking at the world just a little bit differently. Uh, and so it's really fun also to see how that um, is evolving. Um, and he has an amazing bio, which I'll let him tell you about if he wants to and share all of that, um, including a whole lot of work with um, the environment and the earth, which we know is very important to us out here in Colorado. We're very, I don't know, you know, into that. Um, and, and into seeing how we can combine our Jewish tradition uh, with our love of the land and how all of those things um, go together. Um, and so uh, and so I'm just really, I'm really honored to be here, really excited to be a part of this class. Rabbi Panitz is talking to us um, about some of the texts that if you are a Temple Emmanuel member, we might not be quite as familiar with. And so I'm thrilled to um, see where we go uh, and, and see what we can learn in the next hour. So with that, I will stop talking, hand it over to Rabbi Panitz. Thank you so much for being with us and for teaching us today. Thank you, Rabbi Hyatt. Um, lovely to see you again. Lovely to learn together. And, and really a big thank you uh, to Rav Shmuley and to Pam for organizing this and for all the incredible work that you're doing. Really, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in an expanded geography. And of course, a meeting with you all in this virtual space is, is really a gift. Um, as Rabbi Hyatt mentioned, um, prior to becoming a rabbi, I spent um, six years in the world of Jewish environmental education. I worked at Pearlstone and Isabella Friedman and some non-Jewish farms as well, and uh, have really long found um, inspiration and, and wisdom in Rav Shmuley in your writing on this topic and in your work and advocacy on animal rights and what it means to be in healthy, sustainable relationship with the earth. So really thank you, Rashmali, for, for all you do, the, th the thought leadership, the advocacy, the teaching of Torah, the happy birthday wishes on Facebook, uh, and, and, and more, and more. Um, with that said, we're not really going to talk at all about farming or agriculture or environmental sustainability today. Um, we're going to really uh, spend some time with a, with a difficult text. Um, with a text that explores the inner world of God's emotionality, a text that explores what it means to try to connect to God through grief and sorrow and pain, and a text that really highlights the chutzpah, the, the holy nerve 
of our tradition and of our people as we enter into dialogue with God about all sorts of uh, suffering that exists in the world. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to locate first the text that we're going to learn from, uh, and then I'm going to highlight a couple of theological assumptions that I think are inherent to the text that will help us um, unpack these, these words as we encounter them. So first, let me tell you that the text we'll be learning today comes from Echa Rabbah, Lamentations Rabbah, which is a Talmudic era midrash on the book of Lamentations. Um, so while Echa, Lamentations itself, is particular to the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem, um, liturgically, Echa becomes associated with Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the, the fast day in which we commemorate the destruction of both the first temple and the second temple, and a, a whole host of other tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people. So Echa Rabbah, this work of commentary uh, that we'll study from today, is compiled in Israel maybe four or 500 years after the destruction of the second temple. While the memory of the destruction and suffering is in some ways increasingly distant in the mind of the author of this text, um, I hope you'll see that the pain is still quite real and quite present. Two theological assumptions um, from which our text grows that, that I think they need to be articulated from the onset in part uh, because they represent theologies that haven't always been in the mainstream of Jewish thought. Um, and in fact, have even been significantly challenged at various points in Jewish history. Okay, so theological assumption Number one, um, and I think the inherent danger within it is actually best expressed, I'm going to take us on a little journey here, um, using a verse from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah 63, chapter 63, verse 9. I'm going to read you just the relevant part of the verse, first in Hebrew, and then you'll see I'll take my time translating it because that's where the fun lies. So the verse is, so if you looked at this verse in a Bible, you will likely see two different spellings of the word low, the Hebrew word low, and two different spellings, I should say, that lead to radically different translations of this verse. All right, so when spelled with an aleph, lamid aleph, lo means no, and in this case is implying the negative, right? Rendering the following translation of this verse. Behold, Sarotam, in all of the people Israel's afflictions, lo tsar, God was not afflicted. That's option number one. But option number two, which again appears if you look at a Tanakh and you see this verse in Isaiah, you'll see both spellings there, spells low with a vav, lamed vav. So listen to how different the translation is if we, if we use the lamed vav spelling. The chol tsarotam, in all of the people Israel's afflictions, lo tsar, God was afflicted, 
Lo, the preposition meaning to God. Right? The affliction was to God as well. All right, so radically different translations based on the difference between an aleph and a vav. And um, this could really, this could take us like a bit afield into the realm of what's known as Cree and Kativ, how, how something is read versus how it's written in the text. And we're not gonna fully go there. I just wanna say for now that, you know, while we, while we might not know the original spelling of this word, but I hope that you'll see the broad theological differences that emerge from these two options. Right? And these are differences that um, actually define some of the seismic shifts in Jewish theology over time. Listen to some of the questions right, that can emerge from these two readings. Does God feel our pain? Does God have an emotional life that we humans can relate to? Or, right? As, for example, Maimonides Rambam would say, no, we necessarily use human language to describe God. That's the language we have available to us, but it's all fundamentally inaccurate because, you know, in fact, God doesn't have emotions. God doesn't even change at all, right? If God was one way initially and then another way subsequently, that would, according to Rambam, imply an, an imperfection in God that's simply off the table, it's not true. Okay, but for today, for our reading of Echa Rabbah, for this text that I brought, I'm gonna ask us just for today to put Rambam to the side. Okay, because our text, I think, fully embraces the notion of a feeling God, of a vulnerable God. And I'd like to suggest that this image of God creates an opening for the human divine relationship. Okay, so behold, tsarotam lo tsar, in all of Israel's afflictions, God was afflicted. That's the mode of reading I'm going to ask us to apply to Echarava today. That's theological assumption number one. Always beware of the rabbinic preamble. It's, you know, it's, it's always lengthy. Okay, number two, theological assumption number two. And this one I'll just say more, more straightforwardly. God welcomes all of our emotions. There's nothing that lives in the human heart that's off limits in our relationship with God. Anger, disappointment, heartbreak, pointing a finger, accusation. God understands that a full relationship with human beings necessitates our ability to leave nothing unsaid. And so that's assumption number two that I think is important to unlocking this text. And I'm warning us a little bit because we're going to see, I think, some striking examples of both of these assumptions striking examples of the emotional suffering, grief-laden God, and striking examples of saying things to God that you might squirm in your chair a little bit, right? Because they're, they're quite daring, but that's maybe the point, right? We need to be able to say these things out loud, and we need to be able to say them to God if we're going to have a full relationship with God. Okay, um, 
I should have said this at the beginning. Please, please, please feel free to put your, your questions or comments into the chat. Um, and we're, you know, we're a relatively small group, so I, I, I'll, I'll pause at various points in the presentation of the text because um, I, I want to hear what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're understanding or not understanding from this text. And that'll, that'll, that'll make this feel a little bit more like uh, Beit Midrash, right, where, we're, where we're learning together and, and wrestling with this text together. Um, so as I said before, um, the text that we're learning comes from Echa Rabbah, Lamentations Rabbah, and it's from a section of that text known as the Petichta, which is the opening section. You know, talk about long preambles. Echa Rabbah has a particularly long preamble with a whole bunch of what's called proems, which was a word I looked up a couple of hours ago. Um, and it's basically uh, an, an introductory remark. So this is Proem 24, all right, in, in Echa Rabbah and Lamentations Rabbah. And it's a long, long text that is still long in terms of what I'm going to share with you today, but it is um, excerpts from this particular proem that we're going to be learning together. All right, without further ado, let me share my screen. So does everyone see the, the source sheet in front of you? Give me a thumbs up if you see it. All right, and all you see is the source sheet, we're good. All right, so let's dive into this text together. I'm mostly going to read in English, although I've included the Hebrew. Um, occasionally I'll pull a Hebrew phrase, you know, if I feel that it, it really adds to our understanding of, of, of our learning. Okay, here we go. When the enemy entered the temple and burnt it, the Holy One wept and said, Woe is me, what have I done? I caused my presence to dwell below on earth for the sake of Israel, but now that they have sinned, I have returned to my former habitation. God's presence has left the temple and returned to heaven. God forbid, heaven forbid, that I become a laughingstock to the nations. At that time, Metatron came fell upon his face and spoke before the Holy One, sovereign of the universe, let me weep instead of you. God replied, if you don't let me weep now, I will retreat to a place that you have no permission to enter and will weep there. As it is said in Jeremiah, if you don't hear it, my soul will weep in secret. Okay, so already so much going on. Right, so I want to just highlight right from the onset, right off the bat, we encounter a God who is crying. And I just, we need to say that out loud, just to appreciate that this is not typically how we encounter God in our texts. A God who is weeping, and not only that, but who is expressing despair, who's expressing regret. Oily, Masiti, what have I done? What have I done? Right, but we almost then immediately see God almost re replying to God's self, what have I done? But, but there's a covenant, God is reminding God's self. There's a covenant and it's been broken. It's as if God's hand has been forced, right? Both the terms, both because of the terms of the covenant, if the people don't, Follow God's mitzvot, there are consequences. In this case, the consequence being the destruction of the temple. 
and, and God lifting God's presence from the Beit HaMikdash, right? But you also see, uh, you know, an image of God that we see in the Torah as well. You know, God who's, who's worried about bad PR. I hate to say it that way, but that God shows up with that voice in the Torah as well, right? What will the other nations think of me? Heaven forbid that I become a laughingstock to the nations, right? And in comes Metatron. We could have a whole other class on who is Metatron and all of the bizarre situations in which Metatron appears in our tradition. But for now, I just want you to know that Metatron is in the, is in the upper echelon of, of angels. And really, I would say has like, has, a, has an access card to God that's like, you know, I don't know. Only, a, only several of these access cards are given out. This is really restricted area that Metatron has access to, right? And, and Metatron sort of says something strange. Right? Let me weep for you. But why? What, why is Metatron saying? What's driving this angel's statement? Is Metatron concerned for God? Is there empathy? The, th the, the thought of God crying is too much for Metatron to bear. Is Metatron afraid? You know, what, what, what happens to the world when God cries? Do the waters shake? Is our equilibrium disrupted? Right? But we have to sort of acknowledge or admit here, and God's response, I think, helps us say this. Metatron makes for a, a, a lousy chapter. Right? That's not what you say to someone who is distraught. You don't say, don't cry, I'll cry for you. There's much better options out there. Right? And God is really not interested in, in somehow you know, deferring or transferring God's tears or God's grief to someone else. God needs to feel God's feelings. And we know that because God basically says, you know, if you don't let me do this, I'm going to go somewhere where your access card doesn't have, have, have permission to go. And I'll just note that this use in Echaraba of this quotation from Jeremiah also picks up on something that we see in the Talmud in, in, in Tractate Chagiga, in which Rav Shmuel Bar Inya says in the name of Rav that God has a place where God cries. God has a special place. God has a crying room, and its name is Mistarim. Right? And, and Mistarim is like the word Hester concealed, a, a secret, a secretive place where God goes and cries. Um, so that's how that's what God says to Metatron. But as we'll see, God is really not interested in crying alone. God is not interested in grieving alone. Right? God is interested in, in sharing God's grief or in being connected to God's children through that grief. So let's, let's move on to see where we go from here. We've got a lot of parts. I'm going to move way quicker through this text than is um, responsible, but that's what we're going to do. All right, part two. The Holy One said to the ministering angels, come, let us go together and see what the enemy has done in my house. God and the ministering angels went with Jeremiah leading the way, Jeremiah being the prophet that the rabbis 
attribute the book of Echa to, the prophet who lived through the destruction of the first temple. So when the Holy One saw the temple, God said, certainly this is my house and this is my resting place into which enemies have come and they have done with it whatever they wished. At that moment, God wept and said, woe is me for my house. My children, where are you? My priests, where are you? My lovers, where are you? What shall I do with you? Seeing that I warned you, but you did not repent, I am now like a man who had only one son for whom he prepared a chuppah, a wedding canopy, but he died under it. I, this, is, this is a difficult text, heavy, heavy text. Right? Lest we think that God's grief will only unfold here in private, God decides to see the destruction firsthand. Lest we think that in times of suffering, this text I think is suggesting, God is distant. This Midrash places God imminently, imminently present in the place of anguish. And the, the language here is so vivid. This image of a heartbroken God, a God who is weeping, who's, who's looking through the, the empty courtyards of the temple, which once flourished and was filled with God's children, God's priests, God's lovers. The language of relationship is so strong and intimate here, right? And, and it's, all, it's all gone, right? And again, we sort of see God expressing this, well, what was I supposed to do? I warned you, you didn't repent. But that feeling that God is expressing is sitting alongside this terrible grief that God is, is expressing, right? It shouldn't have happened this way. They should have turned it all around. I'm heartbroken. I'm distraught that this is what's happened. How could this have happened? Right? There might be a temptation to say those are irreconcilable or contradictory remarks that can't exist in the same heart, but here they do, and they exist in the heart of God. And they exist in the words and the voice of God. God turns to the angels and says, do you feel no anguish for me and my children? Go summon Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses for their graves, for they know how to weep. Jeremiah went to the cave of Machpelah, which is where the patriarchs are buried, and said to the patriarchs of the world, I've, I've sort of excerpted here, right? And then Jeremiah goes to the bank of Jordan uh, for Moses, arise, for the time has come when your presence is required before the Holy One. And when the patriarchs and Moses inquired the reason why, why is God calling us on this day? What does God need from us? The ministering angels replied, have you not heard? The temple is destroyed and Israel has gone into exile. The patriarchs and Moses cried, ripped their garments, placed their hands upon their heads and cried out and wept until they arrived at the gates of the temple. 
when God saw them, immediately, as it says in Isaiah, in that day did the Lord call to weeping and to lamentation, the baldness to wearing sackcloth. And then listen to this sort of statement of, of transparency, right, in, from the mind of the author of this text. Right? The author has just written this and then feels the need to, to, to sort of include this caveat. Were it not explicitly stated in scripture, it would be impossible to say such a thing, but they went weeping from one gate to another. God and the patriarchs and Moses are weeping, moving one, from one gate to the next in the area of the temple. And God says, woe to the king who succeeded in his youth, but failed in his old age. Right, so where Metatron and the angels have failed, or perhaps what they're not capable of, right, in their capacity for empathy and shared grief, that's where the patriarchs and Moses are called, are called upon. Um, and I'll just, I'll just point, it's sort of a, a sort of a strange aside in the text. I excerpted this out, but basically when, when God says, you know, go summon, go summon Moses. Jeremiah says, well, I don't know where Moses is buried because no one knows where Moses is buried. And then God's, you know, God says, oh yeah, good, good point, good point. All right, just go to the banks of the Jordan and say, son of Amram, son of Amram, arise and that'll be sufficient, right? You can sort of see like the rabbis anticipating the question that's going to be asked and then saying, oh, no, no, don't worry. It's okay that we don't know where Moses is buried. Just go to the right general vicinity and, and, and he'll hear the call. Right? And, 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 and the author of this text takes this quote from Isaiah, right? which seems in its literal and its plain meaning, in its contextual meaning, to not be about God mourning, but God issuing a proclamation for the people to mourn, and reads it as inclusive. Right? It's not just God calling for a day of mourning, but joining in the mourning. Right? And, and the image here, again, is so descriptive. It's so vivid. Right? God, the patriarchs, Moses, the angels are walking on ground zero, having witnessed the destruction, presumably seeing dead bodies scattered, and weeping and grieving and engaging in all the signs of mourning together, one gate after the next. So, I'm gonna stop my share for a second so we can see each other a little bit more fully. I guess my big question for us, right, having encountered a text that maybe demonstrates a theology that's perhaps somewhat new or daring for some of us. The question is, how does it change how we relate to God if suffering is a shared experience? How does it change how we relate to God if suffering is a shared experience? It is the image of a God who is weeping and, and beating God's chest and ripping God's clothing. Does that 
threaten our perception of God's power, God's omnipotence, or does it does it does it actually do the opposite? Right, that it it presents an image of a God who is deeply relatable, a God who we can access through the shared point of grief. I'd love to take in two answers and then. Boy, oh boy, does an hour move quickly. We'll, we'll move on to the next part of our text. So Rabbi Singer, and I think Lauren, is that a hand I see? Okay, great. And you can call me Suzanne. Um, actually, to tell you the truth, I have a different reaction. Maybe it's because I read uh, David Blumenthal's Facing the Abusing God, but it feels like an abuser who, you know, is so sorry, but is still going to keep abusing because like all of this is God's fault in the first place. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of cynical. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. Right. So one of the, the deep challenges that we modern Jews need to wrestle with are the different prevailing theologies at different moments in Jewish history. Right. And one of the theologies that is really a, a dominant theology right, through Deuteronomic history and through many of the writings of the prophets, right, is, is a sort of a cause and effect theology, right, in which if you do good things, God rewards us and keeps us safe and keeps us in the promised land and, and stays close, right, and if we do the opposite, if we turn our hearts astray, the rain will not come, and all sorts of terrible consequences will fall upon us. And I would suspect that many of us struggle with that theology, maybe even bristle at that theology. And it might feel like a theology that doesn't speak to our, exist our experience of justice in the world, our experience of how the, how the wicked might prosper and the righteous might suffer, right? And really question, what, what kind of God is it on the other end of that equation? Right? Why is God so um, heavy-handed at certain moments and then seemingly absent at others? And so, Suzanne, all that's to say, I, I, I don't have a, um, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, up, I'm, I'm amplifying and uplifting your point and the, and the question, but I don't have a, a sort of a simple response. I think there isn't a simple response to what you said here. Um, you know, I, I think that the way the text itself would respond, right, is to say, look, like, like it or not, there is a covenant. And the terms of the covenant spell out clearly that if the people Israel break their terms, there are consequences. And this text is just showing us that while on the one hand, God feels bound to the terms of the covenant, which is interesting and curious, right? Isn't God in some ways the author of those terms, right? And we might, we might question the, 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 the terms that are spelled down. God simultaneously feels grief over, 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 the, the, the need to follow through on the terms of the, of the covenant. 
I, 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 we might not like that, but I think that's how the text might respond. But I also just want to say, because this will then eventually, after, after Lauren shares, um, transition us into the second space, the second the theological assumption, the second part of this text, is that, Suzanne, I think exactly what you said is a, is a good example of theological assumption number two, right? Which is that our relationship with God needs to be big enough that we can say anything. If, if what you said is off limits, then we've made God smaller. So thank you for saying that. Lauren. I see it differently. <clears throat> so I think it shows us how invested Hashem is in the covenant. And, and all the, um, there's so many metaphors that talk about a cheating wife being the people of Israel and and the dutiful husband waiting and being patient and finally saying, okay, enough. And, and I think it gives a much more empathetic view of Hashem. I mean, I grew up with the, you know, fire and brimstone kind of idea, like, you know, you do an Avera and a piece of lightning will hit you. But um, I, I think it's a more empathetic and compassionate view of Hashem because Hashem is grieving over what had to be because the people like they just they broke the covenant they just they went too far they stomped on the marriage contract that's how i see it yeah thank you lauren so you know i might i might add here and now i admit that i'm i'm projecting my theology onto this text right uh, if we posit a vulnerable god a God who perhaps doesn't have the power to prevent the Babylonians or the Romans right, or, or anyone who wishes to do evil, doesn't have the power to stop those people in their tracks. And that's a consequence of a system of free world, free will, by which humans in this world operate with. Right? then God is not necessarily able to prevent these terrible tragedies from happening. But what God is able to offer is a presence to grieve with, a presence to cry with, a presence to say, how could this have happened with? And I recognize that there is a consequence to that theology. Right? That positions God differently than some of our, many of our classic texts do. Um, but it's a God who is God who is close to the brokenhearted, right? A God who, um, who we can find healing through by crying together with. And interestingly, I would say that this text, um, I think does, does, include that belief. And it also says that God needs us in order to fully grieve. And the angels weren't sufficient. Find me those humans. They know how to weep. That's who I need in this moment. And then we might say the same. God, we, we need you in this moment in order to grieve fully. Okay. Now we're about to pivot 
and I and I and I'm 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 sort of it's it's a somewhat jarring pivot I think because it moves us from this scene of of maybe an empathetic God or a grieving God or or a mo a place of intersection in our relationship with God that has to do with this real vulnerable emotionality to a slightly more common rabbinic image which is God in the courtroom right all right God. We've got some questions for you about how this could have happened. All right, so I'm going to take us, or Echaraba is going to take us into the courtroom, and we're going to see theological assumption number two tested, which is throw everything you've got at God. It's important to the relationship. So let me share my screen again. All right, do we see part four here on the screen? Give me a thumbs up just to make sure. Okay, good. Okay. All right. Abraham spoke before God. Sovereign of the universe, why have you exiled my children and delivered them over to heathen nations who have put them to gruesome deaths and destroyed the temple? The place, Abraham says, where I offered my son Isaac as a burnt offering. God replied to Abraham, your children sinned and transgressed the whole of the Torah and the 22 letters in which it's composed. Okay, so this, we've seen this, right? Abraham is saying, how could you have done this? And God gives the answer that God sort of replied to God's self with earlier in the text. Oi, how could this have happened? How could such terrible tragedy befall the people? But but they broke the covenant, they violated the Torah, right? So God is now vocalizing that answer in response to Abraham, right? But Abraham, that's not good enough for Abraham, <laughs> right? God's word that the people violated the Torah, eh, that's okay, but that's not, that doesn't hold up in the court of law is essentially what Abraham is saying, right? So he, Abraham replies, let the Torah come and testify against them. Right? So imagine the screens, the, the scene, in strolls the Torah, right, to this courtroom. And Abraham says to the Torah on the witness stand, my daughter, are you going to testify against Israel that they broke your commandments? Have you no shame? Remember the day when God offered you to every nation, but they refused to accept you until my children came to Mount Sinai, accepted you, and honored you. And now you come to testify them against them in their day of trouble? When the Torah heard this, she stood aside and gave no testimony at all against them. Okay, so Abraham is citing here um, a midrash from Sifre, from the commentary on Deuteronomy that God essentially offers the Torah to all the nations of the earth, and none of them are willing to take it on until eventually uh, God gets to the Israelites, and they say, right? we're in, we're going, we, we accept this Torah, we're going to take it on and, and, and follow its rules and, and, and enter into the covenant. Right? So Abraham is reminding the Torah of that experience of being spurned Right, by all of the other nations and said, you go way back with these people. Doesn't that count for anything? 
doesn't the circumstances in which you entered into relationship matter? Think about the whole history before you testify, right? So the Torah stands aside. That, that is sufficiently convincing for the Torah. And then God says, okay, well, I've got, I've got backup witnesses. I've got the 22 letters of the alphabet. Let them come and testify against Israel. So I've excerpted this, but our, the, the full text gives an example of Aleph, Bet, and Gimel, right? So I, but I just gave you one taste of it. So the Aleph comes forward and Abraham says something to it. And then the Bet comes forward to testify against Israel. And Abraham says to the Bet, letter Bet, my daughter, you come to testify against my children who were zealous about the Torah, of which you are the first letter as it's written, Breshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And the Bet immediately stood aside and gave no testimony against them. And then the Gimel comes up and, and Abraham says, really Gimel? It says in the Torah, Gidilim ta'aselach, that, that the Israelites should make tzitzit and only Israel fulfills the commandment of tzitzit. Are you really going to testify against the only nation that upholds you? So this is an interesting strategy. We're going to see a couple of different strategies that, that are used here, but we might say like, you know, Abraham, the defense attorney is, is sort of using the tactic of, we have a relationship here, right? And factor in that relationship, Torah, factor in that relationship when you think about testifying against the Israel. All right, I'm going to move on. There's definitely more to say here, but the time is short, okay? So part five, Abraham thereupon began to speak before the Holy One saying, sovereign of the universe, when I was 100 years old, you gave me a son. And when he was 37, you ordered me, offer him as a sacrifice before me. I steeled my heart against him and I myself bowed. Will you not remember this on my behalf and have mercy on my children? Right? So Abraham stands up in front of God and says, God, you asked me to do the unimaginable, the Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, and I did it. Factor that in. Think about that. Remember that and have mercy on my children. Right? So Isaac does a similar thing. Jacob does a similar thing, right? Pleading with God on the account of the time he spent in Laban's house. Moses does a similar thing, saying, sovereign of the universe, was I not a faithful shepherd to Israel for 40 years, running before them like a horse in the desert? When the time arrived for them to enter the promised land, you decreed against me that my bones should fall in the wilderness. Now that they are exiled, you have sent for me to lament and weep over. This bears out the popular proverb, I derive no benefit from my master's good fortune, but suffer from his bad fortune. Okay, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses all come before God and said, essentially, you owe us one. We were faithful servants to you. We did everything you asked of us. And in Moses' case, and, and, I, and I still didn't get my reward. And now you're asking me to come grieve with you. Well, I'll do that, but I need you to, to hold up your end of the bargain and remember all that I did for you and extend that memory into mercy, 
extend that memory of our relationship into the present generation. And I want to say this is, this is a, a tactic that we actually see come up a lot in, in our prayer book and in rabbinic literature, right? And in the Torah itself. I mean, Moses, Moses almost says these words verbatim after the sin of the golden calf, where Moses says to God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? Remember that you swore to them and said that you would make their offspring as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Don't wipe them out. Right? In the Amidah, in the prayers, in the, in the standing prayer, right? we say, Zocher chaste avot, and many of us add the imahot. Right? We ask that God remember the loving deeds of our ancestors. There's a whole section of the Musaf Amidah in Rosh Hashanah called Zichronot, in which we are asking God to remember the, the merits of our ancestors on our behalf. Right? So the, the, in this courtroom scene, essentially the same thing is happening. Now, we're going to skip part six, although it's quite striking. I'll just summarize by saying the different argument that's brought in part six is that essentially Moses quotes God's Torah against God, right? Moses says, God, in the Torah, you said that a, a, a mother animal and her calf should not be killed in the same day. How much more so is that true of your human children who are being killed by the Babylonians, mother and child alike in the same day? God, uphold your Torah. Uphold your Torah in this moment as well, right? There's something so daring about quoting Torah back at God, right? And saying, God, you be better than this. Follow your own word. Okay. Part seven. At that moment, the matriarch Rachel broke forth into speech before God and said, Sovereign of the universe, your servant Jacob loved me exceedingly and toiled for my father on my behalf for seven years. When those seven years were completed and the time arrived for my marriage with my husband, my father substituted my sister in my place. I suppressed my desire and had pity on my sister that she should not be exposed to shame. I delivered to my sister everything she needed to trick Jacob into thinking that it was me, that Leah was Rachel. And I even went beneath the bed upon which he lay with her, and I made all the replies in order that he should not recognize my sister's voice. I did her a kindness, was not jealous of her, and did not expose her to shame. So let me just back up for a moment, because this, this is a little strange, right? So this, this midrash is quoting um, a midrash that we see in the Talmud, in, in the tractate of Bava Batra, in which basically the rabbis imagine that, that um, when Lavan substitutes Leah for Rachel on the night of Jacob's wedding with who he thought was Rachel, um, Rachel is essentially in on the trick and helps her sister out by communicating everything that Leah would need to know in order for Jacob to think that the woman that he was with, the woman that he was sharing a bed with, was in fact Rachel and not Leah. 
so much so that Rachel hides under the bed and uses her voice to, to, to make it seem like Leia is Rachel. Okay, this probably leads us to some questions about just exactly uh, what Jacob was or should have been aware of, but we'll, we'll put those to the side just for today and recognize that in the purpose of this text, Rachel is saying, I was devoted to my sister, but I didn't, I didn't want to expose her to shame. I didn't want to you know, have her um, uncovered in this moment. And Jacob realized that, you know, that he had been deceived. And Rachel is saying this to God. I did this for my sister. I wasn't jealous of her in that moment. I suppressed my own desire to be married to Jacob in this moment and, 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 and gave Leah her place. And now she turns to God and says, if I, a creature of flesh and blood formed of dust and ashes, was not envious of my rival and did not expose her to shame and contempt, why should you, God, an eternal and merciful king, be jealous of idolatry in which there is no reality and exile my children and let them be slain by the sword? Immediately, the mercy of the Holy One was stirred, and God said, For your sake, Rachel, I will restore Israel to their place. And so it is written from Jeremiah, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. And then the very next pasuk, the very next verse is, Thus said God, refrain your voice from weeping. Your work will be rewarded. There is hope for your future and your children will return to their own border. All right, so we have about 10 minutes. So I'd love to pose the question to the group, right? Rachel, who is not summoned, right? Rachel is, is not called upon by God, right? Who, who but is somehow, you know, is, is observing this scene in the courtroom, seeing that nothing is working, seeing that God remains unconvinced by all the arguments, the arguments of, our relationship with Torah, the arguments of um, avot, the merits of our ancestors, the arguments of quoting the Torah back against God, right? Rachel can have it no longer, and she bursts into the courtroom and, and, and impassionately delivers this argument based on her own experience with her sister and with her husband, Jacob. And so my question is, why is this the winning argument? Why is it that what Rachel says moves God to mercy, moves God to say the exile is temporary, the suffering will pass, my children will be returned to their borders, my children will return to the land of Israel? And I have to say, I feel um, a certain emotionality also sharing this teaching on, on Yom Zikaron and on the precipice of Yom Atzma'ut, in which we think about um, you know, yet, yet another fulfillment of you know, re returning our sons to their borders. And so what is it? What is it about what Rachel says, do you think, stirs the Holy One to mind? A mother's tears, the irresistibility of a mother's tears. Yeah, Lauren, I think, I think that's quite powerful, right? And, and it, it recalls that God says, I'm, I'm looking for someone to cry with. And yes, the patriarchs cry with God initially, right? But that was, that was sort of in part one, right? Now in the courtroom, 
when the men get all tactical in their arguments, what is the image of Rachel? Rachel is crying on the road, refusing to be comforted, right? And maybe God recognizes that emotionality and relates to it. Not doing tit for tat as God does. Um, Suzanne, would you say more about that? Well, um, Rachel says that, you know, she could have been jealous and she could have, you know, taken revenge. Not that God is taking revenge, but God is punishing for, uh, you know, a transgression. And she's saying, you know, I'm doing what I think is right, whether or not, you know, I'm going to be, you know, giving back what somebody deserves. You know, she's taking herself out of that sort of uh, Lex Talionis uh, equation. Right. Oh, I love that. Right. There's, there's a certain element here, which is, um, God, let's break the cycle together. Right? Let, let's, let's break this cycle. Right. I, I found the resolve within me, right, to not go hit for tat, to not let my lesser side prevail and to rise to the moment and have compassion for my sister and to recognize that this is what the moment requires, but right, tomorrow will be a different day. And, and together, let's try to adopt that paradigm. Beautiful. Thank you, Suzanne. Other reflections, um, you know, either, either about, you know, what makes Rachel's argument so convincing or, or, or the broader, sort of the broader dynamic here, right? What exactly is going on in this courtroom scene that you, that you might carry with you as you think about a relationship with, with God moving forward? Where I get mixed up is the concept of, is it that bad things happened because of free will and God couldn't stop it and so he's weeping with us? Or is it more of the courtroom where, well, they deserved it, convinced me they didn't. It seems like in this one short PDF, we got both sides of God. Yeah. Um, I don't, and I don't know the passage well enough to know what it is the Israelites supposedly did wrong. I see them as the victims here. So I like the first version that God can't do everything. Um, but I find it interesting that both of them were shown in one little paradigm. Well said, Joan, right? So, so quickly, just to answer right, what the Israelites did, according to the text, and, and really according to, to, to Nach, right, to the prophets, um, is they violated the terms of the covenant, they, they worshipped other gods, they sacrificed on foreign altars, they broke, they broke the, the terms of the covenant, they, they violated the, enough mitzvot, enough commandments, that, that God, the text says, brought, brought forth the, the Babylonians as the, the arm of vengeance. Right. Again, we, we might bristle a little bit at that, but that, you know, that is, that is the, the, the plain meaning of, of the text. But I think your broader point here is, is so striking. Right? In this one short text, right, we have two different modes. And, and there's a question, right? Are these modes compatible? Are they incompatible? Do they have areas of overlap? Or are they completely distinct, right? In which one way of relating to God or God relating to us is through the shared experience of loss and grief and suffering, 
right? And then another way of relating to God is to say, God, we need more from you. We need different from you. We need you to adopt a different paradigm of relating to humanity than you might have once employed. What I find so hopeful about this text is that God is receptive to that. I, I think that this text demonstrates, illustrates a God who is willing, who is wanting to grow. A God, as, my, as one of my teachers, Rabbi Artson said, a God who is becoming. And, and there is something uncomfortable about that, right? And Rambam had this discomfort as well, right? Because if, because, if God is becoming, then we're left to be uncomfortable with ways that God might have been right? in previous iterations. But, but if God is becoming, and God needs us in part to become the God that we need that God to be, then maybe this text shows us here are some of the ways that we can try to do that. Here are some of the ways to be in a relationship of connection and of perpetual growth. Friends, I think with that, um, as the clock strikes two West Coast time, um, I will close this space or I'll at least turn it over to um, my fellow hosts just with um, some deep gratitude for you all for, for coming together and for learning and for wrestling um, with this complicated, complex, um, but I hope heart expanding text from Echaraba. Thank you so, so much, everyone. But I think Lauren, you promised Lauren something quick. Oh, you're she right. She wanted to say something. I did. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Lauren, did you have it's, one last question? Okay. It's not a big deal, but I just want to put it out there that Rachel was interesting because she was Dafka the one, although it's pre-Sinai, but she stole some of the idols from her father's home and was caught with it. So, and yet, think somewhere that you could do a real word on this. And yet, you know, the people, Dafka were the, the Israelites, Dafka blew it completely with the covenant because they worshiped idols and they went as far as like putting their children through Malach. However, Rif, I was thinking about it, but Rachel's son, Yosef was like probably the most menschlich of all the kids, right? He, he was in Egypt, he didn't succumb to temptations. You know, he was a great example of a Jew in diaspora. Um, so I think between that and just the unconsolable crying of, of Rachel, that Rachel was the, the one to be the one to successfully um, speak for the people. I just wanted to throw it out there. Yeah, that's beautiful, Lauren. And I, and I would I would add to that, right? Um, right, if we think about the arc of Rachel's life, right, her life, tragically ends in childbirth. And she, she dies as Benjamin, as Benjamin is born. And I can't help but think about the connection between that experience and what God says earlier in this text about God's son dying under the chuppah, right? And, and wondering if, if there is Right, part of this, the, the, the empathy, part of the shared experience that Rachel knows firsthand and God is describing in this moment um, are, 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 are finding commonality in that experience. 
Okay. Well, with that, thank you very much, um, Rabbi Ponitz. This was a very meaningful time together. Um, thank you for all of you that attended and our co-sponsor, Temple Manuel and Rabbi Hyatt. And we'd love to have you join us again. We're um, going to be teaching at the same time tomorrow and a couple times next week. So thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Pam. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.